Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you very much, Solon. Uh, my name is Jack, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Also affectionately, or sometimes not so affectionately, known around OMAC as Cactus Jack from OMAC. And whew, about this time of the night, I uh, feel about as green around the gills as I did earlier this summer when I took my first uh, deep sea fishing trip out of Westport. Uh, uh, I'm the, I never have been sick. I haven't puked that much since I quit drinking, and uh, that day I was sick. And uh, it's, uh, it's sort of like the little old wino that uh, walked into the bar one day and he was just really shaking and uh, he ordered a double and the bartender looked at him and he says, geez, mister, do you drink much? And he said, nope, no, nope, s- spill most of it. <laughs> and I feel a little better. Uh, thank you so much, Solon, uh, for your kind hospitality this evening and, and uh, Wally and... Randy and Jim and Bonnie and Bernice and uh, and uh, Richard and the other folks that I've forgotten and of course what an outstanding pleasure again to meet Dr. David A. who be the speaker tomorrow evening here. Uh, he doesn't uh, of course remember it, but I do. The first time I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Dr. David A. was uh, I had 30 days sobriety. And it was a little over 20 years ago, and he was the main speaker at a roundup in Stockton, California. And I don't want to say that it's all entirely due to your efforts, David, but uh, thanks to that talk and the language of the heart and a bunch of wonderful people in Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had to ever take a drink since that day. So if you're looking for a real dynamic, energetic, and uh, wonderful AA person, of course, uh, Dr. David A. will be here tomorrow. Oh, I, uh, I'm not really a great speaker. I, uh, I, I always make a couple notes. I write down a couple of jokes to tell because if nothing else, it settles me down a little bit. Uh, the, uh, I've really come to believe uh, part of the, part of the reason it's, uh, it's hard for me to give a talk at AA is because I really believe now in these days of my life that I'm really nothing special. I'm not near as hot of a shot as I used to think I was. And at one time at an AA roundup, I heard an AA speaker say, uh, be careful what you do or say at an AA meeting. You may be the only big book someone will ever read. And uh, when you stop and think about it, uh, that's kind of an awesome responsibility. My wife Sophie and I had a beautiful drive across the state today. Uh, it was quite a, quite a shock to get here and find out I was supposed to be from OMAC, Texas. Uh, <laughs> I guess I should say you all. <laughs> Actually, we're from OMAC, Washington, uh, just over the hills on the rowdy side of the state, although uh, from a little bit of what I've seen here this afternoon and this evening, I believe uh, uh, there's a few rowdy people over here. Uh, I know Deepwater John and, uh, and uh, of course, Solon and, uh, and that Wally there. That's, that's quite a bunch of people. On the way in, I, uh, I saw a, a fairground. So recently, earlier in September, we had our Okanagan County Fair, and uh, one of our neighbor kids had been working all summer. Uh, 
He'd, uh, oh, for a whole year, he'd raised a pig, and he'd made this wonderful handmade bucket, and he'd planted a garden, and he'd uh, grown this gigantic pumpkin, and one other thing he'd raised was a duck. And he decided to take all of these things over to the Okanagan County Fair and enter them. So he had a heck of a time. He put the pig under one arm and put the pumpkin under the other arm, and he grabbed hold of the handle of the bucket and grabbed the duck by the neck, and he set off down to the road heading for the Okanagan County Fair. Well, his neighbor had a pretty little young lady that was about his age, and she walked down the path just as just as he walked by, and he said, hey, you want to go to the fair with me? And she said, sure, I'll walk along with you. There's a big old bend in the road there, but there's a shortcut through the woods. And he's walking along carrying this pig and the bucket and the pumpkin and the duck. And he said, man, I don't want to walk clear around that big long road. Uh, let's take the shortcut through the woods. And she said, ah. She said, my mama told me about you. She told me if you ever got me out in the woods, you'd try to kiss me, and I'm not going to go through the woods with you. And he said, that's ridiculous. How in the world? I got a pig under one arm, a pumpkin under the other. I'm carrying a bucket, and I got the duck in this hand. I couldn't do that. Let's cut, take the shortcut through the woods. And she said, no, you'll get, get me out there, and you'll try to kiss me. And he says, well, by golly, I just don't know how in the world I could do it. And she said, well, I'll tell you. She said, you could put the pig down. You could set the bucket over the top of it. You could set the pumpkin on top of the bucket, and I'll hold the duck for you. <laughs> She's going to belong to Alan on someday, isn't she? <laughs> Tonight we're here to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous and the language of the heart. And thanks to the language of the heart in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm alive and well today when, when a number of years ago it certainly didn't appear that I was going to end up that way. I'm kind of a strange person in AA because I really, there's no reason really I should be here. I had a fairly, I was born and raised in Cooley Dam, Washington. I was uh, born on the Colville Indian Reservation and I uh, have uh, lived in that area most of my life. I uh, had normal parents. Uh, they used to cook dinner for me. They, they, they didn't raise too much heck. They, uh, we had, uh, we had pretty, I just had a pretty normal childhood. However, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things they taught me about alcoholism is it's a disease that's twofold in nature. One is the mental obsession that we have, coupled with the uh, physical allergy or physical addiction. Later on in my sobriety, I came to believe that, that I was born an alcoholic because as I look back in my life, even though there's absolutely no reason on earth for me to be an alcoholic, I can look back at things that happened to me when I was six, seven, eight years old. I can remember one time we were going on a trip and my dad was interviewing for a new job. And I was about seven or eight. My little sister was three or four. And we were sitting in the car and the guy that was going to interview him came down the driveway and was saying hello to my dad, and my dad introduced him to his family, and this was a real important deal to my dad, and I sat in the back seat, and I went like this to the guy that was interviewing. I mean, that isn't really much, is it? 
But it seems like that all of my life I was always doing stupid little wacky things that caused me discomfort with myself, caused me to feel like I really didn't belong anywhere, and to feel like other people were always picking on me. And I blamed all of this stuff on other people. I remember getting up into school and in the, uh, in the uh, 12, 13, 14-year-old bracket. I remember one night going out with a bunch of guys and uh, we left uh, we left Cooley Dam and drove up to B Street and Grand Cooley and they had a little tavern there and we parked out in front of it and we were just all nervous and shaken and we waited for some old guy to come out of there and we gave him a couple dollars and asked him to buy us a six-pack of beer. And he did. We did that for a long time. I don't know why any of them guys never did take our money and run with it. There wasn't anything we could do. But this guy came out and he brought a six-pack of beer. And we drove way up in the hills because we were really scared. The cops and everybody was after us. And we went up there. And there was three guys with me. And each of those guys drank about a half a beer. So they could go into the dance and blow their, blow their breath in the girls. Let them know we was all big and strong and tough. And we could drink and do all these things. And I remember that first half a beer settling down in my stomach. And I remember getting a little glow. And all of a sudden... The pimples I had, they didn't matter. And the fact that I was third string end on a team that only had 24 players on it, there was only two of us third stringers. That didn't really matter. The fact that I had an old clunk car and, and an old pickup, the, the only car that my dad would let me buy was a 1939 International Pickup because he believed that you had to earn things in life. And he wanted me to start out with something crummy and work and, and, and make it better. And, I, and all of a sudden, my old truck was really sharp. And I remember that. And I remember sitting out in that car and drinking the other beer and a half that was left over because I enjoyed that feeling so much. Do you remember your first drink? Boy, I remember mine. I remember the magic of it. I remember going into that dance and, man, I was something. I was something. I was... I was hip and slick, and I was the best one there. And the trouble is, when you're in school and, and that's only going on very seldom, I, you can't get that feeling very often. That's when the middle of, mental obsession to drink really hit me because I was always cutting up in class. I was always cutting down people. I was always... Uh, I was very egotistical on one hand. I was always criticizing people. Somehow, it's kind of sick, but I was always the kind of person that uh, maybe I would tell a lie about one person and make them sound really bad because somehow that made me a little bigger, a little better. And then when you're out there and you're you're alone and you're in the dark and, and you really know inside of you that you're not a very good human being, then I could look forward on the weekends to having a little bit of that beer and getting that glow and getting that good feeling. And all of a sudden, I wasn't such a bad guy. I was a member of the first class uh, down the road a piece on the reservation there. There's a beautiful little town of Nespelum. And I was in the first class where the uh, Indian students came down and uh, went to high school with us. And I started running around with those guys and going up with them every Saturday night to the old New Deal dance hall down there. And man, I'll tell you, that was something. Those guys really knew how to have fun. They really did. Man, they were drinking and chasing girls and fighting and just 
Man, they, they, and, and I just fit right in. I was naturally adept at, at all these wild, evil things. And then I'd go back to town on Monday and pretend to be a good kid that went to church and try to impress everybody uh, with what a fine guy I was. I was leading a double life of 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. On one hand, trying to be this wild, undisciplined person, and on the other hand, trying to convince people that I was really something. And the trouble is, if you're a person like me, that once you get that booze in you, it sets off an immense craving for more and more and more and more. I, I, I progressed down the road to alcoholism, full-blown alcoholism, very rapidly. Um, by the time I was 27 years old, I'd already been through three marriages. I'd lost unknown jobs. I used to be involved in all a lot of those one-man layoffs, you know, where the boss calls you in. <laughs> he says... He says, Jack, he says, I don't know how we're going to get along without you, but starting Monday, we're going to try. I, <laughs> I, I was always, I, I wasn't the type of guy, I didn't go to the high school counselor, and he says, Jack, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a big shot. I want to be a big shot lawyer, an engineer or something. I didn't tell him, man, I want to be an alcoholic. And so he says, okay, here's how you be an alcoholic. You go out and get the crap beat out of you a bunch of times, go to jail eight or ten times, have three women divorce you, throw you out, get a couple cars repossessed. Isn't that embarrassing? One time I stopped at this restroom and I had some new business partners with me that I'd met at the bar. And I stopped at a restroom at the Chevron station in my little hometown. And I got out of the car to go in there and I come out and my car was gone. And these guys were standing there. I said, what the hell happened to my car? And I said, some guy in a suit came up and drove it off. He said, I mean, how impressed were they? But I tell you what, I feel sorry for that guy. Because after I'd been in AA for a while, I took a guy to the meeting, to a meeting one night that had been, uh, that I used to do a lot of drinking with. His name was Squeak. He's a crazy big old Indian, lives over there in Omac, and him and I used to really rip it up together. And Squeak and I were at a meeting, and he really hurt my feelings. They called on him, and he, he mentioned that he used to drink with me, and and he says, but Jack wasn't very fun, much fun to drink with. And And somebody said, why? And he said, well, his car. He said, that car really stunk. I mean, anything that could have been thrown up from either end or come out of either end was spilled all over in it. When you went to stop, it had. A, when you went to stop, beer cans and empty, cheap whiskey bottles would roll under and sometimes lodge under the brake, and you couldn't get it stopped fast. <laughs> I mean, he would. It turned out. I, I guess that's why he stayed drunk when when he was around me. He was just scared of my doggone car, and that was the one the guy repossessed and drove off in. You know, so. <laughs> I don't think they got a very good deal there. <laughs> the sad thing about the disease of alcoholism that I've come to learn later on, and although they told me about this early in my, when I first came around Alcoholics Anonymous, the saddest thing about it is, is that it only gets worse. It never gets any better. And so there I was, a guy going along. I was going to college here, flunking out, joining the party circuit, jump, uh, flunking out here, getting this job, getting fired. 
By the time here I am, about 25, 26 years old, I'm, I'd, I'd, I thought I was a big professional rodeo rider, and I got thrown off of everything I ever got on. I used to, I used to say it took an awful good horse to throw me off, but it didn't take him too long. <laughs> but the drunker I got, I was a world champion. The drunker I got. After my second divorce, I got a greeting from the President of the United States, he invited me to join the Army, sent me over to Fort Lewis, sent me for a free tour to Southeast Asia for a year, and I'm telling you, I was in my glory when I got over there. Now, if you're a drinker like I was a drinker, that is a wonderful, wonderful place to be. You could buy a case of Budweiser for $2.40, and all the guys I was around, there was about 20 that lived in the hooch that I lived in. And about 18 of them smoked pot. Now, I tried that pot twice, but I was sure drunk both times that I tried it, and it really didn't do nothing for me. And I liked booze better, because when I was smoking that pot those two times, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But when I was under booze, it was a delusion that I had that I always knew what I was doing. I could always get somewhere. <laughs> now, they gave, you, they gave you ration cards that allowed you to get three cases of beer a month over there. Now, since I happened to be in a hooch where 18 out of the 20 guys smoked pot and there was only two of us drunks in there, they didn't give a shit what happened to their ration cards, so they'd give them to me. I had all, I went over and stole a refrigerator out of the officer's hooch next door. Then I hotwired it over to the, uh, to the tactical operations center because if the power went off, they had an emergency generator. I had 24 hour power. I don't know how I lived through that year without being court-martialed. One time I came home drunk, I'd been drinking with the first sergeant, and I came home drunk and there was this lieutenant sitting there that I didn't like, and I picked up a sandbag and threw it at him, and it bounced off the desk that he was sitting there writing on, hit a camera he had, and busted it all to heck. And the next morning I lay there, like I did many times in my life, and I lay there and all of a sudden something shake at me. And, and I don't know how many times in my life I've had that feeling where I wake up and I'm afraid to open my eyes because I don't know what in the hell I did. And I lay there and something's shaking me and he's awake. Get him. He's awake. That's him. That's the guy that did it. And I look up and there's this lieutenant and there's my first sergeant. And so I thought I was facing trouble big time. The only trouble is I think that our commanding officer didn't like the lieutenant either. I got promoted about three days later. <laughs> it's kind of a it's kind of a wacky thing, isn't it, sometimes uh, what happens to us alcoholics. I can't really explain some of the good and some of the bad that happened in my life. I left a trail of misery behind me. I left uh, children that I didn't support. Uh, uh, altogether, we've had six children. I had uh, two from the first marriage, one from the second, and my wife and I have three wonderful children now. But, but in those days, wives and children to me were just a nuisance. I mean, they expected you to do things like pay rent and bring food home and, <laughs> and take them someplace from time to time and all of this crap, and I didn't want to have any part of that. When I got out of the Army, I moved back to the reservation, and uh, one night I was sitting there, and I was on a 30-day drunk, and I met the lovely lady that's, uh, for some unknown reason, only to the Creator. I don't know why God allows women to put up with idiots like me, but she's been put up with me for 22 years. The first couple of years were pretty tough on her. 
The last 20, it's been a little tough, too, but they've been a little better for her. They've all been awful good for me. But I was sitting there, and I was drinking and playing stick game, and, and that's an Indian gambling game they do, they do back there. And here came this uh, little gal in, and she was home visiting them from Washington, D.C., and I offered her a beer, and we went out to the car, and we got together, and she had something I wanted. <laughs> now, it's not what you're thinking. See, I was just out of the service, and I was broke. I wanted some money to drink on. She, she had a good job, but she had some money. She didn't have a driver's license, and I did. And so I was telling her, these people around here are bad for me. i got to get off this reservation and, and get back to college. So what we did is I conned her into moving to California with me because I'd heard that in California, if you was a veteran, you got free college education. So she did. She bought a car. We got in it and drove to California. Uh, with my blind alcoholic reasoning, I, I picked Sacramento to move to because it's in the northern part of the state and I didn't like heat. Now, any of you, any of you folks that are from, uh, any of you folks that have ever been to California, Sacramento, uh, from Sacramento to Redding, there at the northern end of that San Joaquin Valley has got to be one of the three hottest places on earth. But anyway, we moved to Sacramento and I enrolled in college. And I had to make money because we had this little daughter that she had and I adopted and, and, uh, I had to make a living and go to school and I, everybody knows that the best classes you have are in the daytime if you're going to college. So I had to get a job nights. What kind of a job would a guy with absolutely no training that all he knows how to do? I got a job as a bartender working nights. You know how long I stayed in college that time? I did. I made it all oh, three or four months that time. That was one of the, that was the longest times it took me to flunk out. And there became a series of real tragic drinking. I would leave to go get a haircut and I wouldn't be home for three or four days. And in the meantime, uh, she wouldn't marry me at that time. She, that was the one smart thing she did. She said, I'll live with you, but I'll be doggone if I'm going to marry a wacky guy like you because I can't trust you. And I was an in-and-outer, going home and working and getting new jobs. And finally, I come home off of a simple little week-long drunk. And I showed up at the door, and there she is standing there at the door. Oh, I forgot to mention, I'd, it was a couple days, it was Christmas Eve, and I'd spent the whole day drunk, and then I got thrown in jail on Christmas Eve on my third drunk driving ticket. So I get home, and there she is, and she's standing at the door, and this time she's had enough. She says, Jack, get the hell out of our life. She said, when you leave this place, we're behind on the rent. We don't have any food. We don't have any money to buy nothing. And you got to go out and sit in them bars and sit there and stare in those mirrors and lie and act like a big shot and do all this stuff. And you leave us here and you just come home and scream and holler and the kids are scared of you. And, and we got absolutely no life at all. Just get the hell out of our life. And she did something she probably should have done before then. Her brother and si her sister and brother-in-law and my brother-in-law, her sister, anyway, two of them come and picked her up. <laughs> they lived in Bakersfield and they took off with her. And there I was alone in that house. And I had some peace of mind at last. I really did. I got rid of that woman and them kids and now I didn't have anybody to bother me. You ever watch one of them 
Roy Rogers or cowboy movies, and there's all kind of action, and everybody's fighting and doing all this stuff and shooting each other. And at the end of the movie, the guy gets together with the gal, and they ride off into the sunset, and everything's peace. I went in there, and I laid down in the bed, and I had a little bit of beer in the refrigerator. I had nobody there to bother me, and I laid there, and I got a great peace come over me. I felt like I was riding off in the sunset. I was going to go down, I was going to sell the furniture, whatever it was we had, our old punk car, and I was going to go down on 4th and J and get in one of them flop house hotels down there and live on Skid Row. And nobody would ever bother me again. God, it was so intoxicating, just, just sitting there and just, God. One of the reasons that I believe in a power greater than myself, one of the reasons I believe in God today, is because I do not know to this day what happened, except that I was sitting there on that bed, and I had the phone in my hand, and I was crying, and I was talking to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I told this lady, I said, I'm going to die from this drinking, and I don't have anybody, and nobody wants me. Will somebody please help me? And she said, I'll have somebody give you a call, sir. Just, just hold tight, and somebody will call you right back. And a few minutes later, I got a call from one of the finest alcoholics God ever put on this earth. His name was Hugh. Uh, he became my sponsor, but he called me up and he he said some things to me. He said, hi, I'm Hugh and I'm an alcoholic. And he said the words that are the most important words I really believe you can say to a sick, suffering alcoholic. He said, I'm an alcoholic. I belong to AA. Would you like to go to a meeting with me? And I said I would. A little bit later on that day, up to the house, drove three of the finest alcoholics God ever put on this earth. Uh, Hugh was one of them. There was another guy with him. It was several weeks before I even found out what his name was. They just called him Shithead. And <laughs> Hugh and Shithead came to the door. But there was one guy that stayed out in the car. The guy that stayed out in the car uh, didn't have any legs, and uh, he had two artificial appliances, and uh, and his name was uh, Johnny Hilliard, Johnny H. And they came in and talked to me for a few minutes and asked me if I'd still ready to go, and I didn't have any place else to go that evening. And although I was starting to feel better, see, I, I used to get well pretty fast. I was starting to feel a little better, and I was a little bit ashamed that I would was sinking as low as something like going somewhere with these bums and alcoholics and on them. I knew what AA was. I'd heard about it. That's those guys that stand out on street corners shaking tambourines and saying, don't drink. I was sure that's what Alcoholics Anonymous was. But I get in the car with him, and I got a big old hat, and I uh, had a coat on, and I turned the collar up and slouched down in the seat. and I, They put me in the back seat with this Hilliard. Now, he's a good friend of Dave's, and, and Dave can verify a lot of this. He, Hilliard was one of them old-time, hardcore alcoholics. Hilliard had come into the program in January 1941 in Cleveland. And his sponsor was Clarence Snyder, the home brewmeister in the big book. And back in those days when he came in, they didn't have any choice. When Hilliard came on the program, they just said, this is your sponsor. And they pointed at Clarence, and he, he couldn't stand him. But you, in them days, you didn't dare talk to anybody else. You didn't dare go ask anybody else a question. 
Because Hilliard had just done a year, he had just been sentenced to a year and a day in family court. And if he didn't go to AA, he was going to have to serve the time. So he went and he listened to Clarence. And he was around in those days when it was real rough and tough. So I sat down in the car and I'm already starting to feel better. And I know I'm probably, maybe God has decided to send me there to help these guys or something like that. I wasn't in the car two minutes with Hilliard when he started insulting me. Uh, Hilliard uh, told me many things my first year of sobriety, which took much longer than a year to achieve, incidentally. Uh, one of the first things Hilliard ever said to me, he said, Young man, he said, there's two important things for you to learn your first year in AA, and that's sit down and shut up. And that was one of the kindest things he said to me for a while. They took me down to the old Monday night club group in Sacramento there at the corner of 13th and Inn, and I walked into the room, and there was quite a wonderful mixture of people in there, 13, 14 people. The guy chairing the meeting was a guy named John. John R. had done, John was uh, like 31 years old, and he'd done 17 years hard time in prison because he was also a heroin addict and a bunch of other things. And every time he'd get thrown out of prison, he didn't know what else, what else to do. So he'd start drinking and hustling drugs, and he'd get thrown back in. And he was chairing the meeting that night. And there was a gal named Florence there. They brought me in, and Florence was a scrawny little old guy that looked about 90 year, gal that looked about 90 years old. And she called herself the Queen of Skid Row. And it took me a long time before I realized how much love Florence had for me that first night. Do you remember what it's like to come off a drunk? Do you remember, at least with me, a few hours after I had my last drink, I'd start shaking. And they brought me into that meeting, and on one hand, I thought I was hip and slick and looking good, but I was starting to get the shakes. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just shaking all over. And there was coffee cup. That was a really good group. They had donuts after the meeting, and they had porcelain coffee cups. I found out later they had it so they could make us sick guys wash them. We had to wash ice coffee cups and ashtrays. But anyway, she started walking by filling the coffee cups with coffee. And when she got to my cup... She filled it half full, went to the next one, poured them, poured them, poured them. And I sit there, and as I look back later on, I realized what a gift of love from the language of her heart she'd given me. Because I was an egotistical guy that did not want to be made a fool of. And, if she, and I wanted some of that coffee. I was sick. But do you realize that I'm sitting there shaking, and if she'd have filled that cup up, do you think I'd have drank it and spilled it all over and embarrassed myself with all them people watching me? No. I drank that coffee because she was that smart. And they told me a bunch of wonderful things that night, a bunch of wonderful things. They told me that I was the most important person in the room. And I'm telling you, nobody had been telling me that for a lot of years. <laughs> they told me as a new person that I was the most important person in the room. They told me they were going to give me a choice of how I lived my life from now on. They were going to give me the choice of whether or not I had to drink. Now, at that point in my life, I was a daily drinker. I had to drink. When I get up in the morning, I had to drink. I, I just I just didn't know no other way. It's, a, it's that old busted world of broken dreams and fantasies and lies and all that stuff. There, I was such a rotten human being that the only way I could stand myself was to be drunk. And they told me that they would show me that Alcoholics Anonymous is simply a program of living where we'll show you how to stay away from that first drink. I remember, though, the first time I was 
little smart on one side of my head. I was kind of like a schizophrenic. The guy says, if you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk. And my smart side says, did you think that up all by yourself? I mean, I, w I wasn't quite ready for some of the things they told me. And then I came to that rotten Hilliard. And all he said that night was, well, if nothing else, we've screwed up your drinking. Once you hear that there's a way out, you'll never be able to drink successfully again. The other thing I remember they told me that first night was, try it for 30 days, and if you don't like it, we'll refund your misery. And the terrible guys in AA in Sacramento those days, they were really rotten. You know that they wouldn't leave me alone. Night after night, they'd come driving up the house. Do you want to go to a meeting? They were calling on me. They were checking up on me. God, that was one of the best things that ever happened to AA there, right? They told me to read this rotten book, so I read their book. I worked all the steps, and I, and I was ready to join the speaker circuit, all in a period of two weeks. <laughs> the only trouble is, as I know today, if you don't take care of working this program enough to remove the mental obsession from drinking, you're going to get drunk again. And you all know what happened to me. A guy as smart as I thought I was, about 30 days later, and I'd conned Sophie into coming back to me, and I'd kept the job that I was about to get fired from, and things were going well. I was going to AA, and I was getting tired. A lot of those guys talk a lot. I'd sit there and say, Jesus, don't they ever shut up? One night, I was sitting there, and I was sitting next to Hilliard. And some guy was talking in the back and going on and on. And I said to him, I said, Hilliard, do you guys let assholes like that in AA? He says, yeah, Jack, we even let assholes like you in AA. <laughs> True story. <laughs> so one night, I was really getting in good shape. And I told my wife, let's go out for a while. At that point in time, uh, she enjoyed drinking. We'd had some fun together drinking. And I was doing okay, and I'd been telling her all the right things, like how AA was helping me taper off and things. That's a rotten thing about you Al-Anons. If you get them before we can start telling them a few lies, they know how much BS that is. But <laughs> those guys, she hadn't gotten a hold of that yet, see? And so we went out. We went into the old Sticks bar there in Sacramento, and I sat there, and I remember drinking three bottles of Coke. Twelve-ounce cans of Coke, not bottles. Now, have you ever sit there and drank 12 ounce, three of them cans of Coke in your life? I mean, it's rotten what that stuff does to you. It's floating up to here, it's running out your nose and your eyes, and it burns, and besides that, it'll kill you. I have had a lot of people tell me about how Coca-Cola has eaten up their acid of their stomach and done things and killed them. It's just like Alka-Seltzer. I've had a lot of bartenders tell me that Alka-Seltzer will kill you. And they'd say, here, have a double. It'll make you feel better. Oh, okay, yeah. Made sense to me. So I'm sitting there that night, and I have those three cans of Coke, and she's sitting there, and she had a couple of tall, long neck bottle of Coors. And old Big John's wandering up down the bar, and all my buddies are shooting pool and playing the jukebox, and I'm full of that Coke. And I told her, honey, I'd sure like to have a beer. And a real sad thing about, about life is, I guess I've been telling her the right thing. She said, well, you've been coming home every night, you've been going to work and everything, and you've been going to AA, I guess a beer wouldn't hurt you. 
And I asked old Big John to bring me a beer. Now, I was a little nervous about it because them guys in AA had been telling me what it says on page 30 in this big book. They've been telling me that if I went back to drinking, I would be like these guys in here and pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. The persistence of the illusion that ever someday we'll learn to control and enjoy our drinking. And so that's what it says. But I thought, what the hell? I remember looking around and waiting. I thought about eight or ten cops were going to come out and grab me. And they were sitting there in front of me and somebody was going to toss me off the bar stool and beat the hell out of me or something. And by golly, I remember taking a sip of that and nothing happened. Nothing happened. I had, I had two, three beers that night. And I learned something that every alcoholic like me has always wanted to know. I had been trying for years all of the things it says in that book to learn how to drink like a gentleman, drink like a man, not make an ass out of myself. I've been trying every way and several that nobody else had even thought of yet, and all of them had failed all of my life. I had learned a way to drink successfully. The key is that I only drink with my wife. That's the key. That's the key. About Thursday of that same week, that was Saturday night, about Thursday and on payday, I went into the bar with the boys after work and I had three Cokes again. You know what happened then? This time I called her. I called her and said, honey, I, she says, I know where you're at. You're at, you're at the bar there. And I said, well, I'd like to have a beer. And she says, well, you can have one, but you better be home for supper. So I did. I had a couple of beers that made it home for supper. Now I had two ways to drink successfully. And all of you that are alcoholics know about how long I had any success. It was no time at all. Whereas it also says on page 30 that such intervals are usually brief and lead in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I became an in-and-outer in AA. Those guys wouldn't leave me alone. Every night, here come Hugh, and he always had Hilliard and Shithead with him. You want to go to a meeting? <laughs> they were calling me, and finally I said, don't call me, boys, I'll call you. I wasn't about to work any of those steps. I thought anybody that did that was wacky. I wasn't about to apologize to anybody. I wasn't about to uh, do any of the things that they said I had to do, so therefore... I was in and out, I wasn't having any success, and I became mired again, once again, in the hopelessness of alcoholism. This went on for a period of months, and finally what happened, what I hope was the last drink, we went to a rodeo in Klamath Falls, Oregon, and I stayed drunk for several days, got back to Sacramento, got back on, it was a Memorial Day weekend, and on Tuesday morning I got up to go to work and I was really sick and hungover and I stopped down at the old checker club there to have a couple of those early morning specials. They used to have a double shot of whiskey and a little glass of beer for 50 cents there to kind of get your day started right. Oh, that was something. Anyway, I was sitting there and I had three or four of those specials. And I've heard many times in my life, I'd heard people talking about drinking themselves sober. Now, I'd been drunk for the better part of three or four days. I'd started out, I'd had a half a dozen or more or three, I don't know how many of those doubles. And I should have been just totally blitzed. And I remember a clear thought coming into my brain. And that clear thought was, them guys in AA is right, this crap is going to kill me. 
And I was sitting there in that bar, and I didn't know what to do. And the only thing I could think of to do, the guy that had been the most honest with me, he was my sponsor, but he was a nice guy, and I could con him just a little bit, see? The only guy that had been totally and completely honest with me was old Hilliard. I went over to the phone, and I called him up, and I said, John, this is Jack, can I come over and talk with you? He said, sure, come on over. I went over to his house, and I sat there, and we talked for a while, and I told him that maybe I might be ready. I told him that I might try to work the steps, but I needed to do something because I was going to die from this booze. And Hilliard picked up his phone, and he called Hugh out at his job, and he said, Hugh, he said, you know that guy we've been waiting for? He said, he's over at my house. And this time, I think he means it. Hilliard had never said nothing nice to me. And he called up Hugh, and he said, this time, I think he means it. Hugh came over, and they took me to a meeting, and I went back in, and this time I had a little different outlook on Alcoholics Anonymous. If there's anyone here that is in the program, or on the program, or on the fringe, and you're not enjoying yourself, and you're not enjoying life, and you're not having a fun-filled, wonderful life through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you need to listen to what those people did for me and what this book and this program did for me next. They took me down to San Francisco. We used to, my early sobriety consisted of going to meetings with those three guys in the car and they'd take me down to Stockton. We'd go down and see Bill S. down there and they took me over to San Francisco and we'd see Dewey and a lot of the old timers in AA in the, in the California area. One time they took me down to a place called Truman's Recovery House, and they had an AA meeting run kind of like Bill did it in the old days. This guy would sit in the middle, and everybody else would sit around in a circle, and he'd talk to you and ask you questions, and that was a meeting you'd answer. And the subject of that meeting that night was surrender. And the first thing he did was read the definition of surrender. And I don't remember word for word what it was. He said, But I do remember this fellow saying that night that there's two ways you could come into Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, you can approach it. One way is you can submit to it, and the other way is you can surrender to it. And I remember talking about the difference. I remember him talking about being forced in because your family's going to leave you or the judge sent you or some other things. And he said a lot of people eventually find sobriety when they've submitted to it first. But then there's the other way, and that's where you come in and you just give up. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm willing to go to any length. Take me total and complete surrender. For me, Jack, the crazy, goofy individual that I am, and I always wanted to be a good guy. I didn't set out in life to be the SOB I was. I didn't set out in life to be that way. I just, I just kind of seemed adept at it. It just kind of naturally came to me. <laughs> but this time I was ready, and I came in, and this time I was ready. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the steps in my life. I've never had a power greater than myself at that time. I do remember a couple of things Hilliard told me about that time uh, uh, when I was working on step two. Hilliard told me, uh, I says, I'm having trouble finding God. And Hilliard says, the only thing to need, you need to know about God, Jack, is you ain't him. <laughs> and that helped me a lot. That helped me a lot. I remember... 
trying my best. And I'd drive around in my car. I'm a salesman. I'm driving around in my car. And there was a little old lady in Sacramento in those days, days named Helen D. And Helen was a beautiful, wonderful AA lady. And she, too, spoke the language of the heart to me. One time in a meeting, I told them, I'm having trouble finding God. And she said a couple things to me. She said, one, the old saying that we sometimes are lucky enough to hear, fake it till you make it. The second thing she said to me was, Jack, you need to pray out loud. See, I'm kind of a wacky person. I try to be a good person, but my mind doesn't always agree with me. I I have a mind that's naturally adept at evil and thinking evil, and the longer I'm away from it, the better I seem to be able to think about it. See, And I'm sitting in there trying to be good, and my mind's running off in ten different directions. And Helen told me that if you speak out loud that your mind seems to go more of in a single direction and and you don't get all those wacky thoughts and it worked for me man you'd have thought i was nuts driving around sacramento in that car talking it's nice to have you with me we're having a good day today aren't we and i did and i can't tell you how long it took but i can tell you that my higher power came to me and he's still with me my higher power when I get so nervous and I, and I, and I wonder what I'm going to say and I wonder how I can help somebody because that's what I want to do and, and, and I can feel it coming up from you people. The spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous comes through you right into me. And that's what I felt in those days and it was with me. And then came one of the single hardest things that I've ever had to do in my life. Step three. How does a person who is a totally selfish, liar, phony, egotistical, no good, whatever bad adjective you you can think of to say, like me, completely and totally selfish, turn his will and his life over to the power of something greater than himself? It's tough. You know where the answer is? The answer is in this book, in the chapter to the agnostic. I was driving around trying to find myself and there's a line in there that says do you now believe or are you willing to believe in a power greater than yourself if so this is a spiritual experience and then it goes into took me nearly nine months to get the third step in my, in my life. I remember I used to go to all these out-of-town meetings with these guys, and Hugh would be talking to me, and I'd be watching some gal on the street or watching some guy racing by, and my mind would be a hundred miles away, and every now and then old Hugh would say to me, what was that noise? i said, what? He'd say, oh, that was your mind snapping shut. <laughs> I learned after a period of time that when Hugh said to me, what was that noise? I mean, he was about to say something he wanted me to listen to. He said, Jack, you've been awful quiet lately, and that's unusual for you. What are you thinking about? And I said, Hugh, I'm trying to work the third step. What does it say in the fifth chapter? Half measures availed us nothing. All my life, I'd never done anything completely to the best of my ability for reasons of fear of failure, for all kind of other reasons. I had never done anything in my life to the best of my ability. I always quit. 
And I said, Hugh, I don't know if I can make this program. I, I can't seem to work that third step. And he said, Jack, he said a term that I've heard a hundred times since in AA. It's a term, and the simple part of AA is what's always worked for me. He said a term I'll never forget. He said, Jack, you're pole vaulting over mouse turds. I said, what the heck are you talking about? He says, you're making it too complicated. Dr. Bob, in his last address, said, above all things, keep it simple. He said, you're making it so complicated. I want you to tell me the first three words of the third step. Nothing else. Don't get ahead of me. Don't say nothing else. What's the first three words? And I said, made a decision. He said, Jack, you wouldn't have been wrestling with that step for several months if you hadn't made the decision to do it. The depth of how good you do the step isn't important. You've made the decision. You've worked the third step. I understood it. A big load was left on, lifted off my shoulders. But you know, one of the problems of this program, I remember one night I had the good fortune of sitting up half the night and talking with Clarence S. down in Reno at the Spring Fling in March of 75. And that's the home brewmeister, Johnny's sponsor. And I was sitting there talking to Clarence, and I was talk, telling him I was having trouble working the steps. And he says, well, you know what I say when a new guy asks me how you work the steps? And I said, what? He says, I say, you can count, can't you? Oh, he says, two comes after one, three comes after two, and so on. And the other thing that he told me, he says, I get so sick and tired of people saying 12 suggested steps. He says, I get so sick and tired of people saying that. That is not what that says in that big book. He says, go back and read it. And he says, while you're at it, you're only supposed to read the black part. you got to think about that one a little. So I went back and I, to my room and I opened the book and I read that. And what it actually says in the fifth, chaps, the fifth chapter is... Twelve steps suggested as a program of recovery. It doesn't say twelve suggested steps. It says these twelve steps are what they suggest as the whole program of recovery. That means that the only way a wacky guy like me is going to get a little better life and, and, and get some serenity and get some growth is if I work the twelve steps. And I got in it. And I'm not going to take too much longer talking about all the steps. The fourth step, extremely hard for me. And the fifth step, I went, I went to Hilliard, and I sat and talked with him, and I told him things that, the things that I put in my fourth and fifth step, and then when I put in my men's steps. Have you ever been driving down the road, and and you think of somebody you told off, or you think of some rotten thing you've done, and 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 you get all embarrassed and red, and you get a knot in your gut, and you get ashamed, and you, you think, shit, did I do that? And what did I do in the old days? I became a magician and turned into a bar. That's what I did in the old days. <laughs> the only way. See, the biggest problem with Alcoholics Anonymous, as I see it, is it don't work as quick as a drink. That's the big problem. In the old days, when I got that terrible feeling and I got that hurt and I got that guilt and all of those terrible feelings I had, I could go in and get a double, and another, and another. And pretty soon I felt fine, didn't I? Okay? Take as much time as you want. They may not appreciate that message. 
So the things that I worked on in my fourth and fifth step, Hugh was very kind to me and shithead. Incidentally, his name was Johnny S., Johnny Schaefer. The reason I talk about him a little bit, and I feel it's important to an AA speaker should only speak about our own experience. Anything I say is only my own opinion and how the program has worked for me. That's all I have the right to talk about. But I do like to mention Shithead or Johnny Schaefer as he's called because he was one of the finest men I ever met in AA. He died with over 20-some years sobriety. And that first night when they came to pick me up, he was an unusual alcoholic. Some of us get up here and we had a lot of flash and drunk driving tickets and divorces and all this crap happened to us and we can talk about it, see? Johnny S. was a mathematician that worked for the federal government that only drank on weekends and only drank beer and he'd never been arrested, never been married, he'd never done an exciting thing in his life. (laughs) Really? He worked 38 years for the federal government? And after he retired from the federal government, he was living in this retirement home in Sacramento there, and the retirement home had a uh, had a uh, laundromat in the basement of it. And John had went down to do his laundry, and he took a couple beers with him. And he was down there doing the laundry, and he drank the beer. And what happens when you drink beer? I don't know about you, but I had to pee. And so did he. Anyway, John looked around. There was nobody around. And he went over and peed in the laundry sink. Now, John was a gentleman. He was a fine man. I mean, he was something. And that got him to AA. <laughs> True story. True story. <laughs> and the importance of that story is this. See, part of my problem when I first come to AA, I thought I was too young. I thought I was too many, many things to be an alcoholic. I thought alcoholics were the old guys like Kellyer, the old wino type guys that lived on Skid Row and had lice in their hair and cooked chicken necks and tomato cans and all of this stuff. I thought that's what alcoholics were. An alcoholic is someone who, whose life, who, who doesn't like their life because of alcohol. That's a simple definition. Alcohol made Johnny not like his life. He joined AA. He's one of the ones that 12-stepped me, and we went many years to the program together. He's one of the ones that saved my life. That's an important story. So the things that I put in the fourth and fifth step were these things that I would think about when I was driving down the road that would make me so embarrassed and so ashamed that I had to have a drink. And I went to Hilliard, and I started telling him, and it's tough. I hear in a lot of AA meetings, uh, well... I work my fourth and fifth step in the meetings. I do. I hear that a lot. Uh, And I'll tell you what, not me. (laughs) Do you think I'm ever going to tell any human being any of those things? Right up until the time I went and worked that fifth step with John, I wasn't even sure I could do it then. I went over to his house, and I sit down, and I remember the one of the most degrading things I'd done had happened when I was in the Army down in Fort Benning, Georgia. And I was so bitter and ashamed, and I, and, and I swore I'd never divulge it to a living soul. And I talked, talked to, I finally had enough courage, and I told Hilliard about it, and he started laughing. He said, hell, my whole company used to do that in Hawaii in World War II. <laughs> but what he did, what he did for me was this. The purpose of laughter in AA, the purpose of the language of the heart, the perfect purpose of these steps is to clear away the wreckage of our past and give us a daily reprieve 
from the ravages of alcoholism. What he did for me was he sat there and he talked to me. And through telling these individual things that I did, and they encouraged me like they always tell people, put down some good stuff too. I didn't have any. They helped me. I was going to AA. That was, some, you know, that was about the only good thing I could think of I was doing. And, and I was trying to be a better husband and father and I was working. There was a few good things. But most of it centered about these horrible things that I was so ashamed of that I'd done. But he sat there with me and he said, now what made you do that? They, they followed in, they, the answer fell in many categories. One was envy, one was jealousy, one was anger, one was pride, selfishness, all of the defects of character. And by sitting there talking to me about them and laughing and helping me with them, I learned for the first time in my life, see, see all of us are three people, aren't we? See, there's who you think I am, and you have no idea. You have no idea. There's who I think I am, and that's closer, but I don't even, you know, no. And then there's the real me. Sitting there talking with Johnny H. that day and working the fourth and fifth step, I became more aware of who Jack really was in all utter and complete honesty than I'd ever been aware in my life. I heard a guy one time talking about the fifth step, or the sixth step, and he said, he said, what if you took a milk bottle and you took it up on top of a mountain? And, and before you took it up on top of a mountain, you stuck it behind the exhaust pipe and, and filled it with crummy, poisonous air. And then you took it up on top of a mountain and you took a vacuum pump and pumped all of this rotten crap out of it and put your hand over it. Now you got a total, complete, empty milk bottle. You got a choice. You can go back down the mountain, stick it behind an exhaust pipe and open it up and fill it with more poison, or you can be up there where the air is pure and sweet and clean and take your hand off of it and fill it up with something pure. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what the fourth and fifth steps did for me. I was like that milk bottle with all the poisonous air sucked out of it. And I walked out of that house, and if you look on page 76 and 77 in the big book, it talks about working steps six and seven. And for me, steps six and seven were extremely brief. I walked out of that house, and I decided to let something much better back into this body, into the shell. I decided to try to start being a better person. I decided to try to start being a better employee and a better father and a better husband. And the, another sad thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is you don't live your whole your whole life a certain way and then all of a sudden you come to half a dozen AA meetings or go to a spin dry center and come out and and then you don't have then you just aren't instantly good. That just doesn't happen. If you're as wacko as I am, it takes a, quite a bit of time. Some people get well much faster. I, one guy I sponsored one time, Gary J. over in, over in Espelum, Gary was more mature and, and better off in his sobriety in six months than it took me five years to get. Some people are just more ready than others. I was a bad case. I was a tough case. But I decided right then and there to try to become a better human being. As I walked down the steps of Hilliard's house out on that sidewalk, was I ready to get rid of all that crap? You bet. 
fixed step, entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. I was ready. And I kind of looked up and said, man, I hope you can help me with it. And that was step seven for me. That was step seven. I, I, I was as humble at that point in time as I've ever been in my life. I just totally exposed myself to another human being and, and in the AA way. He was kind and loving to me and I know that nothing I ever told him will ever be divulged to another human being. Then you get to eight and nine. I've heard it said in a lot of AA meetings, uh, well, the way I make amends is I dress good and I go to work every day and I'm nice to my family and I call my mom and dad on their birthdays and Christmas and all this and I just act better. I make amends by being a better person. Well, with me, Jack, that is half measures for me. That's all I can say. It says in the black part of that step, it says made direct amends wherever possible. I had most of my list from working step four. Direct amends to me is no matter how hard it is, is going up to some human being whom I've wronged, and I have no right to expect them to even accept it favorably or, favorably or even like me for it. I have to go up to them and say, I'm sorry for what I did with you. I hope you can forgive me. I have to pay them back the money I owe them. I have to be a better human being. I have to do a lot of things. Direct amends to me, then that's what I had to do. The old guys that I was around in those days down in Sacramento taught me so much about life. I want to tell you a couple of things. I remember when I was sober a year and I hadn't worked all the steps yet, one of the proudest moments of my sobriety was getting our new phone book. The Sacramento phone book is a big, thick phone book. There were 16 Jack Millers in that phone book, and my name was one of them. I took the phone book back into the bathroom and I sat there on the toilet for about a half an hour and just looked at my name <laughs> and my address and my phone number and it wasn't unlisted and I didn't have all them bill collectors hound on me and all them other people. I didn't have to worry. Alcoholics Anonymous allowed me to have a, my name in the phone book. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me so many blessings. Those guys told me that you'll work the first nine steps and you live the last three. Now, I don't know if that works for anybody else, but it's always worked for me. I worked in the first nine steps to the total and complete and utter best of my ability. And the last three steps, they told me, were reinforcements of the earlier nine steps and I needed to take them on a daily basis, 10, 11, and 12. Continue to take personal inventory and when I'm wrong, promptly admitted it. Now, you can ask my wife over there. I've got promptly down to about two weeks now. <laughs> After 20 years of sobriety, I got it down to about two weeks. But at least I'm doing it. Sometimes I don't do it every day, I'm ashamed to say. Sometimes stuff piles up on me a little bit, and i got to get a little humble again. And I was talking to Sophie on the way over today, and I said... The interesting thing to me about Alcoholics Anonymous, those old guys used to say, if you don't grow, you're going to go. And i got to keep growing. I found out here a while back, and I thought I'm a pretty good guy. I found out that I got into a habit of, of, of being, a, being a dictator and an ogre and a real evil person around my house. 
I guess I got so perfect I expected everybody else to be perfect. That's a tough lesson. That's a tough lesson when your kids want to run away from home and don't want to have nothing to do with you and your wife that's put up with you for all these years and she loves you and you love her and, and she's talking about moving out too. And, and, of course, I'm saying, well, shit, I'll just leave then if that's the way you all feel. I mean, I'm talking that old childish way that I talked before Alcoholics Anonymous. I still got to grow. I still got to grow or I'm going to go. All of the character, Johnny H. used to say that character defects, he said it's kind of like wearing a clown suit. You ever seen one of them suits that clowns wear and they've got a colored patch here and one here and they've got colored patches sewn all over? He said that clown goes to work every day and wears that suit all the time. Pretty soon the threads wear a little thin and it exposes what's not underneath it. He said that's like my character defects. They're, the threads sometime are going to wear a little thin and mine are going to pop up again. I need to continue to work the maintenance steps of this program the rest of my life. Yes, Alcoholics Anonymous is a 24-hour, one day of sobriety, one day at a time is a 24-hour reprieve from the ravages of alcoholism, but only. You know what it says on page 128 when it talks about father having all the pride and, and finding this great gift of sobriety and wanting to keep it to himself. It says, Father feels he has struck something better than gold. For a time he may try to hug the new treasure to himself. And these are some of the most important lines to be in the big book. He may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load which will pay dividends only if he minds it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. Did you ever hear that in AA? You can't keep it. you got to give it away. One of Bill's favorite old sayings, instead of a drink, reach for a drunk. It's in the big book. You can find it in there. I've had so many wonderful things happen because of you wonderful people and because of this program. I'm 49 years old. I got five grandchildren. One time I got named Man of the Year by the local Rotary Club. Learned to fly an airplane. I'm still a professional rodeo contestant, and I'm still out there beating some of them young guys, only this time I don't have to get drunk to do it. A couple of years ago I was in the Calgary Stampede. And this last year I rode in the Pendleton Roundup and didn't win any money, but I was, I was there and it didn't get hurt. <laughs> I, uh, I got some friends. You know, there, there's, there's, not everybody likes everybody in AA. I got some friends, maybe they don't even care for me in AA, but there's nobody in AA dislikes me enough that they'd like me to, to see me take a drink. If, if I called any of you here, or if I called anybody I've met in a program said, God, I can't handle it. I need some help. Somebody would come and help me. And people aren't doing that anymore. At least in my group. I'm not a hugger and a hand holder and all that stuff. It's been tough for me, these, some of these changes coming in AA. I'm one of those, I'm a dinosaur. I believe in the way those guys did it that taught me and nothing else, goddammit. And I will hug girls now, but I do not hug boys. <laughs> and I did start holding hands because one night everybody was holding hands and I'd stand back there like this and wouldn't hold hands. And this new guy said to me, he says, uh, after the meeting, he came up and he says, 
He says, don't you like me? I said, well, sure I like you. You want to go work a step? You want to talk about the big work? What do you want to do? And he said, well, I noticed that every time I stand by you, you won't hold hands with me when everybody's joining hands for the, for the serenity prayer. It embarrassed me. I didn't want to make him feel bad. I just didn't think that was part AA, so now I'm holding hands. <laughs> I don't say thank you after everybody talks either, though. I think that uh, some things are going to come harder for me. i got to grow, I guess, or I've got to go. I, I, <laughs> I, I, maybe I'll change my mind on a few of these things. But the problem I see with just hugging somebody is I remember Hugh and Shithead and Johnny H. coming after me night after night and saying, do you want to go to a meeting? They didn't just hug me and forget me till the next meeting. They kept calling me. They knew I was hurting. They wanted to help me. They wanted to save my life because somebody else had wanted to save their life. Somebody else had taken time out of their life to help them, and they wanted to pass it along to the next new man. One of the great things that's happened to me recently. I read in the paper where this young bull rider that's an outstanding young athlete, and he's won some big rodeos around, he lives in our town, and I read where he ran into a cop car, and when they chased him out in the field, he threatened to kill the cop, and he was drunk, and they found a whole bunch of cocaine in his car. And so I went over to see him about a week later, and I said, hi, Dave, how are you? fine and his little young girlfriend and they have two little kids and they've been living together for years and she's a beautiful young lady and hard worker and has put up with a lot of crap out of him like my wife put up out of me and like your wives or husbands have put up with out of you I said Dave uh, I don't know if you know this but I'm a member of AA and what anything that's happened to you is none of my business I'm not here to ask you any questions or anything, but 20-some years ago, I was ruining my life with that booze, and if you ever want to talk to anybody about it, give me a call. And he said, well, well, I guess I have had a little problem, and we got to talking, and he said, and I said, well, and, and, and I don't know a lot about drugs. I personally believe that Alcoholics Anonymous, alcohol is a drug we talk about. I also know that nearly everyone that comes into the program these days has had many other addictions, and that, that's just part of the program. Uh, and the only reason that I didn't do any of that crap is because it wasn't around when I was drinking. I was always looking for a bigger and better way, and I, man, if it had been there, I'd have used it. I know that much. But I don't know much about it because although I have many friends that, that help me with it and tell me about it, I don't know a lot about it. But he said he didn't do it. Well, about three or four days later, I called him. I said, hey, it's time for the Tuesday night meeting. You ready to go? And he said, yeah, I'll go with you. He went to the meeting with me. And I told him what they told me at my, before we went to my first meeting. They told me that, they'd, that I, they'd call me by my first name. They didn't want to know nothing else about me. They'd tell me I was the most important guy in the room. They'd tell me to keep coming back. And they'd give me some phone numbers in case I ever wanted to talk to anybody. And all that stuff came true. That's just what happened to Dave. The guy, we left the meeting, and he said, well, when's the next meeting? You want to go to another meeting? And I don't know what's going to happen to Dave. Uh, a few years ago, and David A. was talking down there in Stockton and didn't know there was this young wacko guy sitting there with 30 days sobriety. He didn't know 
that 20 years later we get to share a little time at the same roundup and after, that I'd never taken another drink after I heard him talk. He didn't know that, and I don't know what's going to happen to this Dave either. I only know that the only thing I can do in Alcoholics Anonymous is try to give someone else what you folks gave me. Because I'm such a selfish, egotistical person. If I keep, if I go back to my old ways, I'm going to go to the gates of insanity or death. I need to close. We're getting too long. I'd like to share a story and I like to tell cowboy stories with you. There was a cowboy back home that was, had to leave our part of the country, but he had a horse. And he didn't know what to do with it. So he started looking around for somebody to board his horse. And he drove down and here's this big mansion type deal and had fancy brick stables and white fences and pretty rows. And he went up and knocked on the door and he said, uh, said, I need a horse boarded. Uh, would you guys board a horse for me? And they said, sure. We'll board it and the price is $100 a month and we get to keep the manure. He said, well, $100 a month, and you keep the manure. And, uh, uh-uh. and he drove on down the road a ways, and he came, came to a house that kind of had a wooden stable, and, and it had tin roof, and it wasn't too fancy, but had fences around it, and he went up and knocked on that door, and he said, got to buy board a horse. Would you care to board my horse for me? I said, sure, we board horses. He says, it'll cost you $50 a month, and we get to keep the manure. The old cowboy says, Heck with that noise. That's too much money. He drove down the road and he came to the old alcoholic's place. He come down there and there's a house that's leaning like this. All the siding has gone out of it. There's old beer cans and beer bottles all over and the grass, it it isn't even growing. It's all died and there's no fences and the barn is leaning the other way and all the roof shingles are blown off of it. And he comes in and he says, I got aboard this horse. The guy says, yeah, I'll board the horse for you. Ten dollars a month. Now, he'd learned something by this time. He says, ten dollars a month, huh? He says, well, who gets to keep the manure? The guy says, for ten dollars a month, there ain't going to be no manure. Ladies and gentlemen, you get out of this program what you put into it. (laughs) If some of you, if some of you wants a better life, if you want to be able to get up in the morning and no matter what happens to you. A year ago, I had a 21-year-old daughter that was murdered down in Seattle, and I had to go clean her house out, and she was an alcoholic, and she had a .19 when when they... found her, and we had to go clean the place out, and we, had to, and we had to bury her and do all of these things. And yet, when we go to that funeral and all these people from AA are there, and they're, they're saying, hang in there and keep going, and they're, the people from Alcoholics Anonymous are here no matter what happens. I pray to God that I never, ever get stupid enough to skip a meeting, to sit home and watch Monday Night Football or to do it. I, I 
feel like I need three meetings a week and that's what I need for sobriety and my life is blessed because of you people. And, and, and all I can do is say from the bottom of my heart, and I, and I love my wife and I thank you and you people have been so wonderful to me. I thank you all very much and may God bless you and keep you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.